Hello, and welcome to United for Peace, episode 3.1, The Indonesian National Revolution, part 1. Alright, it's been a long time. I said at least two months at the end of last series, which isn't technically wrong, but still way off the mark here. Turns out, buying a home and adopting a couple young kittens takes up a lot of time. I also got a sort of promotion at work, so more responsibility there and less downtime for reading. And yes, I have done a lot of reading on the clock for this show. Boss makes a dollar and so on. Also, I have material prepared for at least two and a half episodes after this already, so content will be regular for a while, rest assured. Before we get started though, a couple updates. One, if you haven't already seen, I have put many maps and photos up on the website, ufppodcast.com, under the media tab. Go check it out. It may make more sense out of the content we've covered so far. Second, also relating to the media, this series takes place in Indonesia. Indonesia encompasses the largest archipelago in the world by number of islands and by land area, and it is home to such diverse peoples that the single most spoken first language is still only a first language to roughly a quarter of the population. So, I can assure you, unless you are already well acquainted with Indonesian geography, this will get a little overwhelming if you don't check out the maps I am uploading for this series. Now, one last thing before we start. This series is covering the United Nations Security Force in West New Guinea. I will make it clear when I am referring to West New Guinea, although I really do not like the name New Guinea. It was given to a massive island by the Dutch and basically equates to them just calling a place New Brown People Land, as Guinea was already a well-established name for a region of Africa by the time the Dutch stumbled upon the island. There are certain political connotations to basically every name for the place, the island could be called Papua, after a prominent indigenous group inhabiting it, or Irian, a name connected to Dutch colonialism, but which at least came from Indonesian input. I will mostly be calling the West New Guinea region West Irian. After all, it is presently a province of Indonesia, and was officially named that until its name changed to literally Glorious Irian. Since using the same word or name for something every time gets a little boring though, I will secondarily call it West Papua, a name we will have much more to talk about eventually. Now, after that lengthy diversion, let's get into it. The United Nations Third Armed Peacekeeping Mission, the United Nations Security Force in West New Guinea, or UNSF, was the police arm of a particularly unique UN operation. See, on August 15, 1962, the Republic of Indonesia and the Kingdom of the Netherlands signed the New York Agreement, a comprehensive treaty on the status of West Irian. A significant part of this treaty was a call for the United Nations to temporarily administer the territory directly. The General Assembly passed GA Resolution 1752 on September 21st that year, authorizing, quote, the Secretary-General to carry out the tasks entrusted to him." End quote. With this authority, Secretary-General Utant established the United Nations Temporary Executive Authority, 
or UNTEA. The UNTEA became the first UN body ever to exercise sovereign authority over any territory for any duration operating between October 1962 and April 1963. A comfortably short amount of time for the UN to exercise sovereignty over anything, states people would generally agree. Interestingly, the Security Council would have almost no say whatsoever in the mission despite the presence of armed personnel. This isn't another UNEF-type situation, however. The New York Agreement specifically tasked the Secretary General personally with overseeing the transitional period from Dutch sovereign control to Indonesian sovereign control, including provisions for security. So, all that was needed for the Secretary General to begin working was for the UN generally to recognize the treaty, at which point his authority would be well-founded in international law regardless of the Security Council's position. Actually, now I kind of wonder what would happen if the Security Council passed a resolution barring the Secretary General from accepting this responsibility in spite of the treaty. It would be a fascinating international law debate, you know, if you find that sort of thing interesting in the first place. Hi. Moving along, the operation only lasted a few months and went extremely smoothly, with the most tense situations involving coming across previously isolated Indonesian guerrilla units and arrests of people trying to incite violence. So, what I'm going to do here is spend more time than usual on the background so we can appreciate just how impressive it is that the UNSF went off without a hitch and gain a greater understanding of the politics of the mission than we would get by just looking at the mission itself. To start, we are going to cover a little bit about the Dutch conquest of Indonesia, then dive into the Indonesian National Revolution. We're not going to dive that deep though. I am not Mike Duncan, and this is not revolutions after all. But like any good revolution, this conflagration includes a spiderweb of bickering internal factions, international conflict, and such enormous questions regarding standing social structures that it seems marvelous that a peaceful nation came out the other side at all. So, let's begin. The Netherlands' main claim to colonial fame came from its expansive network of trading posts, which were especially strong and influential along the trade routes from Europe, around South Africa, to India, and present-day Indonesia. At one point, the Dutch even controlled Taiwan and had exclusive foreign trading rights in feudal Japan, to oversimplify things, for a long time. Essentially, they dominated trade in Southeast Asia and Oceania. However, as is often the case with colonies, the Netherlands as a state did not directly govern many of its overseas territories. You may have heard of the essentially sovereign corporation known as the British East India Company. Well, there was also a Dutch East India Company, which was in fact the first joint stock company in the world. The Dutch East India Company, officially the United East India Company, though called otherwise to distinguish it from the British, was founded in 1602 and used the port city of Jayakarta as a sort of capital starting in 1609. From there, it acquired more and more ports to operate as trading posts, making sure to take over the land around them 
for the sake of security. In addition to controlling truly vast amounts of land, the company was able to wage war, imprison and execute people, negotiate treaties, mint its own coins, and found new colonies, all with the blessing of the Dutch crown. However, despite transporting more than a million Europeans to Asia, employing close to 5,000 ships, and acquiring over two and a half million tons of Asian trade goods, the Dutch East India Company went bankrupt and it was nationalized by the Netherlands in 1796. Before anyone corrects me that it was nationalized by the Batavian Republic, that's just the Netherlands with the French Revolutionary branding that didn't last very long. Moving along, the territories previously controlled by the United East India Company were organized into the Dutch East Indies, which the Netherlands continued to expand even into the 20th century. Once again, I will add maps to the website, but one way or another, you need to understand just how recent certain additions to the Dutch East Indies truly were by the time Indonesia made its bid for independence. The interior of Borneo, most of Sulawesi, a little bit of Sumatra, and the island chain between Java and Irian were incorporated between 1901 and 1912. The Dutch had been colonizing the archipelago since 1602, and did not control these particular lands until right before World War I. But that's still not the end of the Dutch conquest. Importantly for us, West Irian was not incorporated into the Dutch East Indies until 1920. These places just mentioned all account for nearly half of the Dutch East Indies' total land territory. Just for reference, the Indonesian independence movement started in 1908. The Dutch East Indies was still expanding when Indonesia's independence movement started. The remarkable diversity and disparate levels of what may be called economic development will be relevant when we address Dutch and Indonesian arguments regarding the status of West Irian. Not everyone necessarily identified with Indonesia as such. Nonetheless, during World War II, Japan's occupation of the Dutch East Indies from 1942 to 1945 helped build up the Indonesian independence movement, which may seem ironic if you aren't familiar with the Japanese plan to create a stable Japan-centric post-war political order in East Asia. We unfortunately do not have time for all that, but here is what the occupation did for the independence movement. Japan encouraged nationalist sentiments in Java and to an extent in Sumatra, two of the critical large islands of present-day Indonesia. They also destroyed and replaced a lot of the economic, administrative, and political infrastructure used by the Dutch to control the territory. Additionally, certain Indonesian politicians were elevated in status and prominence as the Japanese sought to subvert the old order solidified under Dutch rule. This would include the mononymic Sukarno, Indonesia's first president, and Hatta, his to-be vice president, about whom we will be talking a great deal going forward. To top it all off, Japan's then-prime minister promised independence for Indonesia in an address in September 1944, although he set no date for this. 
Suddenly, those who treated Japanese collaborators like Sukarno with suspicion were given reason to believe in their judgment. But of course, Japan was defeated in the war less than a year later. The terms of Japan's surrender required their forces to disarm, but also to maintain order in the places they occupied until their lawful sovereigns could take over. If this seems contradictory to you, you are not alone. Many Japanese units resolved to simply hand their arms over to Indonesian units they had trained to maintain order for them. Other Japanese units simply pulled out of urban areas altogether to avoid confrontations. What sort of confrontations would they encounter? Well, confrontations with local Indonesians, who did not like foreigners occupying their country one way or another. Since Japan promised independence for Indonesia, but had now surrendered to the Allies before this promise was fulfilled, lots of people were keen to declare independence as soon as possible. Just two days after Japan's emperor surrendered to the Allied forces, Jakarta elites including Sukarno and Hatta caved into pressure from radical youth groups and proclaimed Indonesian independence on August 17, 1945. The Preparatory Committee for Indonesian Independence elected them president and vice president respectively the next day. News of the declaration spread rather quickly throughout Java, a hotbed of nationalist activity, but there were a couple issues spreading it any farther. First, communications infrastructure in Indonesia was not great at this time, so it wasn't until mid-September that news of the declaration reached the so-called Outer Islands, basically anything outside of Java. Second, the news wasn't exactly conveyed by any official channels. No such official channels existed which would convey it. So many people didn't even believe it when they heard it. That said, the dominant trend was for people to embrace the Republican spirit upon hearing the news either way. If you're listening to this show in the first place, I assume you're at least a minor international politics buff and don't need this explained to you. But just in case anyone out there is confused, this is Republican as in favoring a republic as your polity's form of government. This has nothing to do with the USA's Republican Party. Now, despite the slow spread of the Declaration of Independence and the uncertainty surrounding it, the Republican cause got off to a fairly good start. Present-day Indonesia witnessed a power vacuum as the Japanese garrisons were forced to disarm, and in addition, many Australians initiated strikes or boycotts related to Dutch shipping over the issue of Indonesia. Consequently, it took several weeks for any Allied shipping at all to reach the archipelago. Radical youth groups took this opportunity to seize vital infrastructure in key Indonesian cities, most especially in Java. The Japanese garrisons offered little, if any, resistance at all. These youth groups also set up radio stations and print presses to propagate the revolutionary message. Their newspapers and journals especially took off in the major Javanese cities of Jakarta, Indonesia's capital to this day, Yogyakarta, and Surakarta. So at this stage, you can see that radical youth are kind of the main foot soldiers of the Republican Revolution. However, these foot soldiers were not always on the same page as the revolution's leadership, in contrast with the inflammatory, belligerent youth orgs 
Sukarno and Hatta favored a measured, diplomatic approach to achieving independence, with carefully planned institutions. On the other hand, since a revolution can never have entirely cohesive or even aligned leadership, you get figures like Tan Malaka, with whom the radical youth are definitely on the same page. Tan Malaka was a Marxist teacher turned organizer and guerrilla fighter. Malaka manifests Mao's old wisdom to revolutionary communists that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. He thought that independence would come from a revolutionary war waged primarily by the radical youth. Sukarno might have been Indonesia's first president, which tells you a lot about the course of the revolution, but radicals such as Malaka certainly left their mark. Malaka, after all, is remembered by many as a national hero, and the major Indonesian weekly magazine Tempo called him the father of the Republic of Indonesia. But that was not the only sort of fracture in those mobilizing for Indonesian independence. More broadly, this can be described in terms of people advocating for or against social revolution. Beyond that, there were generational disputes, young versus old, left-right conflicts, and disagreements between Islamic and secular forces. Then, there are abundant populations of Christians, Hindus, and Buddhists to add to the religious frictions. Mind you, there is no perfect overlap between any of the groups thus listed. Young ones were not universally leftist, leftists were not universally secular, and elders were not universally strongly religious. Revolution is never that simple. People are never that simple. Ultimately, the only thing truly uniting the people of Indonesia was a fairly ubiquitous commitment to independence. The forces of social revolution and scions of diplomacy ultimately had to work together to achieve this common goal. The Indonesian people came so close to defeat over the course of the revolution that it was nearly impossible for any one faction to advance their own interests at the expense of all others. In many ways, the Dutch attempt to reconquer Indonesia may be the primary factor in a united Indonesia as such coming about at all. Sure, an Indonesian independence movement had started all the way back in 1908, but again, the Dutch hadn't even conquered all of present-day Indonesia yet by that point. They were still in the process of conquering more than half of Indonesia. Several important intermediary islands, and crucially, the enormous territory of West Papua, had not yet been incorporated into the Dutch East Indies. Besides the generational, political, and religious divisions we laid out just moments ago, Indonesia is home to 1,340, yes, 1,340 distinct recognized ethnic groups. It is one of the most diverse countries in the world, and one of the only things all these disparate groups could really agree on is what they opposed, namely foreign dominance, rather than what they supported or shared. Many nations are born of an acceptance of at least loosely connected cultural heritage, but more importantly, a desperate want for a more defensible political unit. The United States of America barely agreed to union despite remarkable similarities from one state to another, 
and it was mostly to shore up their vulnerability to the British, for example. Briefly back to the flow of events, the hastily assembled Central Republican government in Jakarta made an important decision in August 1945. It adopted the constitution drafted by the Preparatory Committee for Indonesian Independence, established before Japan's surrender in World War II, with a few adjustments. Interestingly, the remaining Japanese forces had some influence on the adjustments. The Japanese Navy warned that Christian Indonesians would not accept a special role for Islam in the constitution, and so their requirement for the head of state to be Muslim was discarded, as was the Jakarta Charter, which included an obligation for Muslims to abide by Sharia law. Presumably, the influential Hindu and Buddhist monarchs and nobles scattered throughout the archipelago would also strongly oppose institutionalizing Islam. After all, while the princely rulers of central Java declared support for the Republic in early September, many non-Muslim princes who reigned in the outer islands did not. Part of the Dutch strategy to conquer Indonesia in the first place, as happened all over with imperial powers in their colonial ventures, was to support and enrich certain local and regional elites at the expense of others in exchange for their loyalty. Many non-Muslim princes were among those receiving such Dutch support. One motivating factor for their acceptance of Dutch alignment was rivalry with the Muslim aristocracy, which had come to dominate the archipelago. Hence, these highly influential and powerful nobles distrusted the non-aristocratic nature of Jakarta's political circles, its frequently Islamic nature, and apparent radicalism of it, and also the militant youth, which frequently represented the Republican cause. Now, with all these friction lines laid bare, one might wonder why Sukarno and Hatta were selected as president and vice president when they declared independence largely under pressure from the radical youth groups and they favored diplomacy over the revolutionary war espoused by most youth orgs. However, Jakarta became a sort of engine of Indonesian nationalism. The Jakarta elites, who included Sukarno and Hatta, formed the initial central republican government and believed only they could adequately deal with the Japanese. The ability to work with the remaining Japanese elements in Indonesia was crucial as they were tasked with maintaining order until allied forces could establish themselves in the archipelago. In fact, the Republicans formed a pretty cunning strategy to take advantage of the weak, but not negligible, Japanese position. Basically, the new government wanted a smooth and discreet handover of administrative functions from the Japanese to Republican officials. One way they would accomplish this was by taking existing public posts used by the Japanese during the occupation and turning them into Republican posts. Administrative advisors became administrators in their own right. This would violate Japan's terms of surrender to the Allies, but it wasn't very obvious, and that was the point. And besides, once again, how was Japan going to uphold the terms in question as intended without force of arms, which they were forbidden? Well, Japan did do one pretty noteworthy thing in pursuit of their surrender terms. Between August 18th and 25th, mind you, the 18th being one day after Indonesia declared independence, Japanese personnel in Java and Sumatra 
disarmed and disbanded the armed Indonesian units they had created to support their occupation operations. They figured that having well-armed and organized units of Indonesians would only contribute to public disorder. Republican leadership, meanwhile, counted on these units to constitute their new armed forces. Instead, they got the militia and struggle groups arising out of local pro-independence initiatives. Now, don't act too shocked when you hear this, but these small bands were usually led by younger individuals with charisma or access to weapons. I know, it's a little hard to wrap your brain around. They were typically not connected to any wider network of any kind, so they provided the young government with the interesting challenge of creating a rational army loyal to central authority out of this scattered collection of war bands. Meanwhile, the Allies of World War II fame faced the challenge of what to do about the archipelago now that the Japanese had been defeated. American advances through the Pacific secured little pockets of Allied control here and there by 1945, where Dutch administrators had now already returned to their posts. Additionally, small commando units, mostly of Dutch but sometimes of British origin as well, parachuted into northern Sumatra. Again, please, please, please refer to the maps on the website if you can. Otherwise, if you know roughly what Indonesia looks like, Sumatra is the westernmost big island in it, practically touches mainland Asia. Anyway, it had already been decided that American troops would have no part in post-war Indonesian affairs. They would be stationed in the Japanese home islands. Yet, the Dutch were hardly in a position to take back control of the region. And so, in the end, responsibility over the islands was given to Louis Mountbatten of British Southeast Asia Command. Mountbatten could not do much, however. He did not have the will, nor the soldiers in any case, to reoccupy Indonesia for the Dutch. And so, he resolved to simply accept the Japanese surrender and arrange for the release of European internees. He accepted the de facto administration of Indonesian Republicans wherever he encountered them. Indonesia did not dodge reoccupation all around, however, but that will have to wait until next time. Thank you for listening. I hope you join me next time on United for Peace as the revolution fractures and open battle erupts between the Allies and the revolutionaries. Music